I'm Barry Weiss, and this is Honestly. Inflation in July up 8.5% year over year. Everywhere you turn, prices are up and they're going higher. Everyone knows that inflation is here. Prices up in nearly every consumer category. Now, today's guest, Larry Summers, is one of the very few people who saw it coming. Summers is one of the most important economists in the world. He's been the chief economist at the World Bank. He was secretary of the Treasury under Clinton. He was director of the National Economic Council under Obama. Oh, and throw in president of Harvard there too. But the thing that impresses me most about Summers isn't any of those items on his resume. It's the fact that he is plain spoken and willing to speak his mind, even when it means making himself the skunk of the garden party. And that's exactly what he's been for the past few years. He has been a public and passionate critic of the Biden administration spending policies. So why has the White House invited the skunk indoors? Experts, even some experts who have criticized my administration in the past, agree that this bill, this bill will reduce inflationary pressures on the economy. See, Larry Summers, it turns out, was one of the most instrumental shapers of the Inflation Reduction Act, the massive climate, health, and tax bill that was signed into law by President Biden this week. Inflation hawks, like former Secretary of Treasury Larry Summers said, quote, this bill is fighting inflation. Let me say, this bill is fighting inflation. Not only that, he worked behind the scenes to get West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who you'll remember earlier this summer said there was no way he was going to vote for the bill, to reverse course. How do you do that? Today, I talked to Larry Summers about how we got here, how we get out of this mess, and the high personal cost of getting it right. He makes the case for the inflation reduction bill and also why we shouldn't give up on institutions like the Fed. Later in the conversation, Larry tells me his thoughts about the future of higher education and warns about what he calls the new McCarthyism. Stay with us. There's so much more to Jewish history than persecution. I know it's sometimes hard to believe that when you talk to Jews, but trust me, there is. And in Jewish History Unpacked, the newest podcast from the people who brought you Unpacking Israeli History, you'll find out about some of the craziest, most amazing, but lesser-known stories that fill the Jewish history books. Given that the Jewish people's history goes back for millennia and spans continents and epochs, there are so many stories you just won't want to miss. You'll end up asking yourself questions that you never thought of, like, was Napoleon actually a hero for the Jews? And why were there so many suicide pacts in the first century? Hosts Yael Steiner and Jonathan Schwab will fill you in on what happened, how it happened, and why all of these ancient stories still matter. You can find Jewish History Unpacked wherever you listen to your podcasts. Larry Summers, welcome to Honestly. Good to be with you, Barry. So, Larry, in 2021, you were warning about the threat of inflation. The Economist and the New York Times columnist Paul Krugman said you were wrong. The Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said you were wrong. Jared Bernstein, the chief economist in the Obama administration, said you were wrong, not just wrong, but wrong in a pretty profound way. Well, it's now August 2022, and they were wrong in a pretty profound way, and you were right. So what did you see that they did not? So first, Barry, 
I was warning that there was a substantial risk. Unlike many other people who comment on these things, I'm always aware that I don't know. And so I always try to speak probabilistically. And I did speak probabilistically in saying that there was a much higher risk than many people supposed. Uh, But I think it's pretty clear that I was more alarmed about inflation than others were. You know, the secret sauce of economics, and often my secret sauce, is arithmetic. And so instead of just saying, as many were at that time, we need a really big stimulus because we should have had a bigger stimulus in 2009, I tried to calculate the arithmetic of the stimulus we had. And when I did that calculation, I saw that in an economy where incomes were running $30 billion a month short, we were inserting more than $150 billion a month. I saw that relative to the gap between the economy's potential and the economy's actual output, we were doing five times as much as we did in 2009. 2009 was too small, but nobody, nobody thought it was five times too small. So I did arithmetic, and it looked to me like the amount of water we were putting in the bathtub was far bigger than the capacity of the bathtub. And I didn't know what the capacity of the bathtub would be. I thought there might be bottlenecks of a variety of kinds, and those would be like clogged drains in a bathtub that would make us able to absorb even less stimulus. But even if all that went well, I thought we were overstimulating the economy. In the event, all that didn't do so well, and we had a variety of bottlenecks. And so I didn't forecast that we'd have 9% inflation, but I did forecast that we'd have excessive inflation. And frankly, it seemed pretty likely to me, based on that fairly straightforward quantitative analysis, which I buttressed with historical analysis, comparing the situation with what seemed most analogous to me, which was what had happened during the Vietnam War, when we had also tried for reasons of guns and butter to very substantially stimulate the economy. There had been a Fed that wanted to get along and be socially progressive. And there had been a very strong political will towards more spending. And that set off the inflationary cycle of the subsequent 15 years. And I was worried that we were doing it again. And unfortunately, I think uh, those worries have largely proved out over the subsequent 18 months. So if it was really a matter of straightforward quantitative analysis or arithmetic and historical knowledge, why did people like Janet Yellen say you were wrong? I was surprised that my views, which I have to say at the time I was saying them, seemed to me to reflect pretty straightforward application of basic textbook macroeconomics. I was surprised that there weren't more people in agreement with me. 
it's tempting to blame it on politics and people wanting to do political things, but I don't think there's heavy motivation of a political kind among the prominent business economics forecasters at the major financial firms, and they mostly didn't share my view. So I don't want to put a lot of emphasis on uh, political factors. I would put emphasis on short memories, and it had been 40 years since we'd had inflation. So more or less, anybody's lived experience didn't include a major acceleration in inflation. I would put some emphasis on um, bad statistical modeling. I think that was a factor. I think there was a factor of motivated belief. People wanted to avoid the mistakes of the slow recovery after uh, 2010. And so they wanted to believe that they could engage in very substantially expansionary uh, policies. I think there may have been some belief that the Fed knows best. And so I think some in the financial community may just be reluctant to challenge the views of the Fed. And I think there's also a tendency runs among pundits, it runs among economists to want to make new mistakes. And so for 40 years, people had been saying that there was inflation and everyone who raised the threat of inflation was wrong. And everyone who traded big spikes in bond yields in anticipation of inflation was wrong. It was called the widowmaker trade. And so people didn't want to make that mistake. And so I think all of those things contributed to a kind of communal belief system. And I guess something I've always felt is I've been a huge admirer all my life of uh, John Maynard Keynes's intellect and one of the things he famously said to someone who said he had changed his mind was, when the facts change, I change my views. And you, sir? And a lot of people probably aren't willing enough to adjust their views in the face of evidence. Larry, You've been one of the harshest critics of the overspending on the part of the Biden administration. And yet, it's the Biden administration that's relying on you for your advice. It was you, I just read, who senior White House staff turned to when they were trying to sort out complicated portions of the Inflation Reduction Act. So I wonder, what's it like working with an administration that you also are publicly pretty critical of? So I think if you read what I've said over time, Barry, and I actually hope this is true during Republican administrations as well. It was not true with respect to President Trump. But with the exception of President Trump, I think I have 
almost never or never questioned anybody's motives. I've never suggested that they were not being sincere. I've never impugned anybody's integrity. My approach has always been to focus on what the ideas are. And that's in part because I don't feel that any of us should take positions of moral superiority, except in very extreme cases. I think it's in part because it's just much easier for people to hear you if you are respecting their sincerity. And I think I've also been careful in commenting on decisions public officials take to recognize that those who are on the inside have knowledge that those of us on the outside do not have. And I remember well from times when I was at the Treasury or in the White House that I would have friends who would write things that were very critical of what we were doing and think to myself, if they know what I know, they would not be taking that view. But unfortunately, for reasons of classification or whatever, I can't share with them why I'm taking the view that I'm taking. So I think that it's the right thing to always make it be about the substance with respect to those I disagree with on the right and those I disagree with on the far left. And I think that makes it much easier to maintain open relationships and dialogue. And look, many of the people who are in the administration, including the president, are people who I've had a chance to work with over many years in government, outside government, and we had relationships of trust and certainly coming from my side, mutual respect, uh, which makes it easier to maintain dialogues. Well, let's talk about your relationship with arguably the most important figure other than Biden in the question about the kind of economic bill that was going to be passed. And that, of course, is Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Manchin went famously from opposing a plan that was going to spend trillions of dollars to taking a leading role in the Inflation Reduction Act. Politico reported that you were instrumental in that change of heart or mind that Manchin went through and that you called Senator Manchin personally to convince him to vote for the bill. Can you take us behind the scenes a little bit there and tell us how that happened? How did you sell him? No, I can't. Uh, Barry, I mean, I could, but I won't. Um, How about this? How did you sell him? I have thought that part of what someone like me should do is be willing to provide advice or commentary or judgment to people who are working in government and positions of responsibility. I appreciated it when those who had served formerly or those who had academic expertise helped me when I was in government. And so I thought that I should always do it. So I 
respond to phone calls from uh, public officials and in some cases find myself in dialogues that are more ongoing with uh, public officials. I suspect that the flip side of the fact that I sometimes frustrate people by not taking the line that friends of mine are taking or not being willing to say talking points because they've been handed to me. I suspect the flip side of generating that frustration is sometimes people are more prepared to credit what I say because they think it reflects um, conviction based on a lifetime of economic study rather than a more political motivation. And that's kind of a choice that I've made in terms of the role that I try to occupy in the system. Well, I guess I'll ask this then. Are you happy with the bill? I asked because uh, there was a study that just came out from Wharton that said that the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act on inflation is, and I quote, statistically indistinguishable from zero. So is Larry Summers happy with the Inflation Reduction Act? I am happy with it. I don't think its principal effect is going to be reducing inflation. But I do think it is going to serve some vital national purposes in terms of protecting the environment, in terms of expanding health care, in terms of making our tax system work better, and in the process is going to deliver some reduction uh, in inflation. The Wharton study underestimates, in my judgment, quite substantially the revenue gains from increased tax enforcement in the bill and doesn't take any account of the non-macroeconomic factors, doesn't take any account of the superior purchasing of prescription drugs, doesn't take any account of the increased availability of low-cost energy that will come from the bill. Those aspects, which are major parts of the non-inflationary, of the Inflation Reduction uh, case, are explicitly excluded uh, from the Wharton analysis. But for anybody making an overall policy judgment, those should be included. I'm happy with the bill because I think it does important things in much more responsible ways than some of the earlier, much larger and much less carefully disciplined proposals. I think the bill falls short in important respects. I think it's hugely unfortunate that it doesn't go after the carried interest loophole, which really is, I think, bipartisan, recognized as outrageous. Particularly troubling to me is that the proposals that would go after the so-called guilty provisions having to do with uh, corporate tax evasion using tax havens were excluded from the bill. That's a technical issue that affects fairness in taxation, but it's actually something much more profound, Barry. It's about the kind of global tax system we have. 
perhaps the most important thing that the Treasury Department has done in the last two years, and I think it was a huge accomplishment, was negotiate an international tax agreement that prevented a race to the bottom in corporate taxation. Because that kind of race that meant that corporations could threaten to move and therefore end up paying no taxes, and taxes ended up getting placed on regular people, was something that undermined the whole process of globalization and the whole process of global integration. And so getting cooperation that was for the people in Detroit and Dusseldorf rather than the people in Davos was, I think, something very, very important. And Secretary Yellen did a wonderful job leading the effort. And unfortunately, Congress has now failed to pass the necessary enabling legislation. And I think that's going to contribute to a kind of cynicism about the large role of elites. And I wish those provisions had been contained in the bill. I also think that we are going to have to come back to the whole area of social legislation. We have a larger and larger number of people who are estranged from our economy. In 1960, 5% of men were not working between the ages of 25 and 54. Today, Barry, that number's more like 15%. And if 15% of the people are not, men are not working at any point in time, then a quarter of the people will have been out of work for a year or more over a four or five year period. And that's destructive of the economy's productive potential. It's destructive for their families. It's destructive for the areas in which they live. It's destructive for the moral fabric of our national life. And what we should be doing about that, I think it's a very profound uh, question. Uh, I'm sure there's some role for increased income support. My own views run more to the view that work is a good, and I've been particularly interested, for example, in the issue of place-based policies, policies that would support the economies of some of the most depressed parts of our country uh, in the heartland. I don't pretend to have all the answers, and I think there were a lot of questions about some of the suggestions that were made in the earlier legislative debates. But that is an area, whether you're progressive or whether you're conservative, you can't be happy with that kind of economic phenomena. You can't be happy with uh, what it means for the children who are born of those families. So you're saying work is a good. People need to work in order to have meaning in their lives. And I, I fundamentally agree with that. And it makes me wonder, does that mean that you're against a policy like UBI or universal basic income, which essentially hands out some set of money every month to regular Americans? I'm very skeptical about UBI. I'm very skeptical 
that it would crowd out vast amounts of other social legislation by being either trivial in magnitude or prohibitive in expense. And I worry about it increasing the deep social cleavages uh, in our economy between an elite that generates spectacular wealth and others who may be supported, but who are not given what I think is the hugely important satisfaction of being able to uh, contribute. So I want to look at the experimental evidence. I think we should be trying many, many different approaches, but I'm personally rather skeptical of UBI, not because I don't care or am indifferent, but actually because I do and want to give people and their children a policy framework that makes for the most meaningful possible lives. Well, let me ask you one question then about sort of the future of work, because I see UBI on the, let's say, the left or among independents, but also things on the right, like a sense of sort of returning to tradition, returning to local life as sort of responses to the tsunami that we're all seeing, right? The tsunami being the fundamental change in what work is going to look like. According to a report from the World Economic Forum, 85 million jobs are going to be replaced by machines with AI by the year 2025. Another study that came out recently from Brookings found that automation threatens 25% of jobs in the U.S. And so you can see so many things that are happening in the culture as a kind of reaction to that. But it strikes me that those things, whether it's UBI or, or other policies, are kind of band-aids. Um, but the impulse behind them, which is to try and maintain the dignity, the humanity of people in an age of machines and in an age of artificial intelligence, is profoundly real. And so I know this is a big question, but how do we do that? H how do we make sure that people are leading dignified, economically secure lives in an age where machines are going to be increasingly doing the kind of work that human beings have done for millennia? Barry, I wish I knew, is one answer. Another answer is that there's nothing that you just said that is not in the Commission on Automation that Lyndon Johnson ordered up during the course of his presidency that said everything you just said. The New York Times in 1928 had a story about factories and how those were reducing the all the jobs that had previously existed for craftspeople. My view is that we are going to have to adjust to the fact that manufacturing is much of the way through a transition like the transition that agriculture went through. Productivity has increased massively. There's only limited demand. 
and therefore fewer and fewer people are going to be involved in the production of industrial goods. Already in the United States, only about 4% of our workforce is involved in production work and manufacturing. You often hear the number 10% of the people are in the manufacturing sector, but the majority of workers in manufacturing are accountants or personal assistants or marketing people or people who are doing something other than producing. So I think the great growth in our economy is going to take place, has been taking place in the service sector. And we're going to have to think about the right business models. I have the view, and it's uh, many reject this view very firmly, that there's nothing more fundamental than education and health, that education and health naturally find themselves more in the government sector, and that probably over time, not because our values have changed, but because TV sets have gotten much cheaper and days in hospital rooms have gotten much more expensive and the government is more involved with days in hospital rooms, I think we're going to have to accept a larger public sector that is at least involved in purchasing uh, public functions and that that's going to be an important part of our change. I think we're going to have to deal with the fact that there's immense amounts of productive work to be done. And not all of that work fits with a classic business model. Every kid should have an opportunity to be coached in a sport or another activity of their choosing, not just fortunate kids. And we're falling away from that. But I reject the idea that there's not going to be enough work to be done. And so instead, we should just reap a huge bounty from artificially intelligent robots and use it to finance bread and circuses for everything else. That is an increasingly attractive philosophy on both the left and the right. And I personally am inclined to think it's a dangerous one. Okay, I want to get to education, which you just mentioned in a minute, but I want to ask a few last questions about the current state of the economy before we get there. President Biden and the White House have been assiduously avoiding the R word, that is recession. Yellen has said we should avoid a semantic battle over whether the economy is in a recession. Wikipedia, I'm sure you saw this, is preventing people from editing the recession page. And Despite the economy facing two consecutive quarters of negative growth and inflation at its fastest pace in 40 years, Biden says, that doesn't sound like a recession to me. So tell us, if you can, concisely, what is your definition of a recession and why won't the current administration use the word? A recession is a broad gauge decline in economic activity. I don't think we have seen that yet. I've said that I expect that sometime in the next two years, we will. But I don't think we've seen it yet. If you look at the GDP figures you referred to, Barry, they're driven substantially by the fact that inventories are being drawn down. And that shows up as a cut in GDP because 
it's a disinvestment in the stock of inventories, but it actually can be a reflection of economic strength because it reflects the fact that people are buying a lot. So my judgment would be that we are not in recession. I do think that because of the magnitude of the inflation we've built up, that we will find ourselves in recession sometime in the next two years. But no one can be certain of any of these forecasts. You recently said that Americans need to face, quote, meaningful economic distress from higher interest rates to kill inflation. What did you mean when you said that? What does that look like? I think the evidence is that uh, soft landings are what George Bernard Shaw said of second marriage, the triumph of hope over experience, (laughs) and that by and large, it's not something that happens that we have an underlying rate of inflation, not of the eight or 9% headline figure you see. A lot of that reflects various transitory factors, as many of my critics point out. But we have an underlying inflation rate in the five range. And I think we need to bring that down if we want to have healthy economic performance over the next 10 or 15 years. And a side effect of restraining demand in a way that brings down inflation is likely to be recession. That means an increase in unemployment, likely means a decline in asset prices, means firms producing at lower levels of capacity, means levels of profits declining. Uh, means wages growing less rapidly. And I think the likelihood is that that will happen or inflation will not decline. And if we attempt to postpone it too long by not being determined to reduce inflation, inflation and expectations will become much more firmly entrenched and then it will become that much more painful and difficult to reduce inflation. If you've overindulged and overconsumed, it's painful when you stop. But if you defer that pain, the ultimate pain is likely to be that much greater. So diet now rather than after we've gained another 20 pounds. Something like that. Do you think that institutions like the Fed are well prepared to navigate all of the crises we're facing fiscally, economically in the modern era? Or do we need a new set of institutions and systems to regulate monetary policy? I don't think the problems go to the institutions. I think the Fed has made a number of badly flawed judgments, particularly during uh, 2021. And those judgments will be, over time, costly in terms of economic performance. And I think the judgments they have made have reduced their credibility. And that has made it harder to do what is necessary because they have made such wrong judgments. And when you are less trusted, it is harder to lead. And so I think those are the challenges that we face. 
but I don't think they call for some redesign of the Federal Reserve as a uh, system. I think they call for making better judgments more carefully expressed in the future. What do you say to the person that says, though, why should I trust these people? Why should I trust these policymakers? Over the past few years, they said there was no inflation. Then when it became unignorable, they said it was transitory, and it wasn't. Then they said it was supply chains, and it wasn't. Then they blamed it on Putin. And by the way, this isn't just about the Fed. This could be about lots of institutions in American life. But they're looking at it and saying, you have a really bad track record of getting it wrong. So why should I continue to trust you? Ronald Reagan had a very good phrase when he said, trust but verify. And I don't think people should extend their unquestioning trust to any institution. I think people should be watching carefully. They should be listening to a wide range of voices. We should be venerating rational and serious debate as a central value in our politics. And I think that any institution needs to think about the extent to which it is trusted and what it can do to raise its trust. I think there's often a tendency when people lose trust to try to regain it too quickly with overly extravagant claims and overly optimistic statement of intentions. And that then sets off a cycle where uh, because you've fallen behind, you make bold claims. Because you make bold claims, you're less likely to achieve them. Because you've fallen further behind, you make bolder claims. And I think we have some of that in our politics and in many of our institutions. Uh, in general, I tried, I'm sure I didn't always succeed, when I was in government positions to choose my words with uh, great care and great awareness of the fact that the long run would come and that despite making all the efforts me and my colleagues could, we were fallible. So I never predicted what was going to happen to an asset market. I was careful to modulate any judgments I made about the future of the economy. And I think something similar needs to inform the perspective uh, that our institutions take. I think for the Fed to be issuing a forecast every eight weeks, or every 16 weeks, actually, of what it thinks is going to happen in detail to inflation and unemployment is to invite the loss of credibility because inevitably those forecasts are not going to turn out to be accurate. Uh, Alan Greenspan and Paul Volcker understood what the Delphi oracles understood, which is that if people think you're potent and infallible, but actually you're human, it's a good idea to keep your prophecies 
vague and oracular rather than to put your credibility at risk and shatter the illusion. I think the current generation of central bankers has gravitated to overly technocratic, mechanistic, and academic approaches that make the loss of credibility all but inevitable and have then exacerbated the problem by making some judgments that were pretty fallible even at the moment they were made. After the break, why Larry Summers apologized in 2005 for comments he made about women and STEM and whether or not he regrets apologizing. Stay with us. You're about to hear a preview of The Jordan Harbinger Show, where we expose how patent trolls shake down innocent victims using legal loopholes and abuse of the system. Hello, I notice you've been sued for patent infringement. I'd be happy to represent you for a price. Just remember, your defense cost is going to run around $3 million. Wow. The patent we were sued on had, as I recall, 113 claims. And every claim was almost the same. In other words, one claim would say, a computer accessing another computer to unlock software. And the next thing would be, software unlocked by one computer accessing another computer. That was just the same thing over and over 113 times, phrased a little bit differently each time. Since it took us four years and $2 million to overturn one of those sentences, they could put us through this for the rest of our lives. For more with Austin Meyer, including the details of his investigation into patent trolls and why none of us are safe, check out episode 326 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. Let's talk about higher education. Larry, one of the reasons I respect you so much is that you are very much willing to go against the consensus of the group. You speak your mind. Yeah, you choose your words carefully, but you don't hold back from disagreeing with the majority when you believe something to be true. And maybe the most memorable example of this came in 2005. Back then, you were president of Harvard, and you were invited to speak at a National Bureau of Economic Research event. And the conference was all about diversifying STEM, diversifying science and engineering. And during the talk, you were addressing the thorny issue of the lack of women in science. And you offered a few ideas why that might be the case. Socialization, girls not being encouraged to go into science, motherhood and the obligations it entails— You talked about patterns of discrimination in search, and you also talked about the question of aptitude. I went back and reread it for this conversation, and it's very nuanced and it's eminently reasonable, but the response to it was pretty irrational. There was outrage that followed, and it happened beginning in the middle of your talk where people walked out in protest. One of them is a professor at MIT, and she said this, let's not forget that people used to say that women couldn't drive an automobile. Now, that isn't at all what you said, and numerous studies reinforced your perspective, and yet you decided to apologize. And I wonder, looking back more than 15 years later, what you think about the trickle-down effects of that apology and the apologies of other prominent people for similar imagined sins. You know, if the president of Harvard and one of the country's most important economists can't talk about this subject— Where does that leave the rest of us? 
Barry, it was a painful episode and is painful even today. Let's be clear. My mother had a major career as an economist and uh, continues to propound on economic subjects at the age of 96. I have five daughters or stepdaughters who are pursuing careers in a range of uh, different uh, fields, one of them as a uh, physician in internal medicine. I have had uh, many women students and female colleagues who have done very important quantitative research of one kind or other. There's nothing that's more important to me than the idea that everybody should have all the chance that they can. Um, Those remarks were delivered out of a sense of frustration that with immense effort to avoid discrimination, there was less progress that had been made across academic life in changing certain ratios than many people hoped, that it just was not possible to say that everything was the result of discrimination, given the extraordinary intense search processes and pressures to avoid discrimination and to maximize diversity that had been in place at that time for several decades. And that was the motivation for those remarks. Whatever the motivation for the remarks, Barry, and whatever the logic of the remarks, the fact was that those remarks caused some substantial amount of media to tell young girls that the president of Harvard thought that girls couldn't do science. Nothing could have been further from my intent, but that message did nonetheless go forth. And it did seem to me that as the president of Harvard, it was my responsibility to avoid outcomes of that kind. And in many ways, the more prominent your leadership position, the less free your speech is, precisely because of the uniqueness of the role and that you appear to be speaking for an institution. And so I thought that my leadership responsibility made it incumbent on me to be as clear as I could be that there was nothing in any value or view that Harvard had that suggested that everyone should not work to their full potential. That's why I issued the apology that I did. And if I had it to do over again in the same situation, I would have done the same thing. I think that situation 
is totally different than the situation of an individual professor or an individual researcher or an individual student who should be permitted to express any opinion and should under no circumstances be canceled for the expression of any opinion. And the right way to respond to problematic speech is with more speech and with clear and explicit challenges to uh, the viewpoint. But I do think uh, that if the president of the United States enunciates a bad policy, the First Amendment is not a justification for whatever was said. And so it does seem to me that leaders do need to heed the consequences. And I can think whatever I do think about the behavior of some in what was supposed to be a confidential seminar or what I think about the way in which the remarks were reported But it ultimately doesn't matter. The job of the president of Harvard is to portray Harvard as open, welcoming, and uh, supportive. I do think with respect to these kinds of issues, we have debates that are much too closed off and are often marked by some failure to distinguish between what is true and what people would like to be true. I think Steve Pinker's book, The Blank Slate, which describes a kind of widely believed set of conceptions about human nature that sharply contrasts with Steve's reading of an extensive scientific literature is a very powerful treatment of these kinds of very important issues. I really agree with you, Larry, that if you're running an organization or a company or an institution, you have to be much more careful because you're representing the entire institution. Um, But you and I both know that the list of unsayable things and verboten subjects has just grown unbelievably long. So whereas you could see an argument that what you talked about was really somewhat controversial, now even basic ideas like human biology or like the idea of merit being a good thing are now considered circumspect. So just take one example, the case of University of Chicago professor Dorian Abbott. He had this prestigious public science lecture that he was supposed to give at MIT. His area of expertise is climate, and it was canceled. Why? Not because he was a bad scientist, but because he had been very outspoken about the idea that universities should hire and promote based on merit. So I wondered if you wanted to comment on what I see as a kind of war on merit and what you think the stakes of that are. Barry, I think it's a profound problem that it is much more difficult on university campuses to venerate excellence, to celebrate 
accomplishment to assert that there is greater and lesser truth to welcome iconoclasm, that all of that is much, much more difficult. This is not a new phenomenon. In the 1950s, McCarthyism ran rampant, and those who had had past communist affiliations, even if what they were doing was teaching chemistry, came into question. There were serious efforts by alumni to cancel the teaching of Keynesian economics because it was seen as subversive of the American way. All of that was terrible. It was the original McCarthyism. And the new McCarthyism around a different set of subjects is no less troubling and is a profound threat to American universities. And when it profoundly threatens American universities, it profoundly threatens the formative experiences of the people who will be leading our country a generation from now. And it profoundly threatens the ability to develop the new ideas and the new conceptions that ultimately shape society. Whether those are new cures for cancer, the new understandings of human relations that lead gay marriage to be an orthodoxy, something that would have been inconceivable a generation ago, whether it is understandings of American history that inspire us at a time when our country is engaged in existential struggles, much of that depends on what happens in universities. And if those universities become epistemically closed communities dedicated to social comfort for identity politics, that will be a very, very dangerous thing. And I worry about it every day. Larry, there are students at Harvard right now who describe themselves to me as being closeted. I had a law student write me from his personal email account because he was too scared to write me from his Harvard account. And he said, maybe I'm being paranoid, but I I don't admit my true views, and his true views are like classically liberal, to even my closest friends. I write in my papers what I think professors want to hear. This is not a Harvard problem. This is an everywhere problem at this point, although the elite schools are worse. If you were president of Harvard right now, what would you do day one to make sure that the environment of free thought and free speech that is fundamental to the pursuit of truth was strengthened? I would try very visibly to invite to our campus speakers in a range of areas who challenged our local orthodoxies 
and made clear that I wanted to hear what they had to say, not because I, in most cases, agreed with them, but because I thought I would think and speak more clearly for having considered their arguments. So you'd invite DeSantis to campus? Uh, Certainly. Absolutely. I would be prepared to invite him. I would be prepared to invite Bjorn Lomborg. I would be prepared to invite a set of people with views that were not my views or were not the prevailing local views, but from which I thought we could learn. I would work very hard at detecting and weeding out ideological discrimination from our hiring processes. And I would be at pains, as I was as president, I accepted every invitation I received to speak to the Federalist Society, not because I agreed with what the Federalist Society said on many issues, but because I thought it was important that those views be considered on our campus. And I would try to provide support, as I did in many quiet ways during my time as president, for students who somehow felt beleaguered or challenged. It's not the same issue, Barry, but it's uh, related. I am proud that during my time as president, when there was a call to divest Israel from our endowment, I did not simply say what was said on many other campuses, that divestiture is a problematic tool for achieving political purposes. I labeled the call anti-Semitic in effect, if not intent, because I felt that if Harvard actually did it and did it uniquely to Israel, the signal would be anti-Semitic. And I'm not president any longer, but when there were even more far-reaching anti-Israeli calls on the Harvard campus last spring, I tried to speak out as vigorously as I could against those. And I must say I was struck by the fact that when I did it, the number of people who said they agreed but felt that they couldn't speak out because they didn't have all the protections and entrenchment that I'm lucky enough to have gave me a sense that these problems were even more serious than I had supposed. One more break and then a lightning round with Larry Summers. Stay with us. Larry Summers, you ready for a lightning round? Yes. What historical event has had the greatest influence on your economic views? The Depression. Among economists that you disagree with, who do you respect the most? Milton Friedman. Are Asians in the Ivy League the new Jews? Uh, In some ways. Do you support affirmative action? Yes. If you could have dinner with any historical figure, who would it be? John Maynard Keynes. What's the best career advice you've ever received? Don't be fungible. 
follow your passion, do something unique. If you could keep one book with you for the rest of your life, what book would it be? The General Theory. Bibi Netanyahu offered you the chance to run the Central Bank of Israel. Why did you say no? Many reasons, including uh, the fact that you have to speak a country's language to be able to run its central bank, and I don't speak a word of Hebrew. Not a word? Not a word. All right, Shalom. What will China be like in 10 years? It will be much less economically threatening to... uh, the United States than it is today, but that may make it no less geopolitically threatening. Will globalization be remembered historically as a net positive or a net negative? Immense net positive. The Social Network, good or bad movie? Excellent movie. What do you think Joe Biden's legacy will be? America moved way back towards getting on track after a deeply dangerous and crazy period. Larry, if we have this podcast again a year from now, what do you think we'll be talking about? Uh, Making sure that populism does not completely pollute American politics to the point of producing dangerous outcomes in 2024. If you had to predict who the next president is going to be, who would it be? That one I'll duck. I've answered a lot of them. Larry Summers? A total pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you, Barry. Thanks to Larry for coming on. And thanks as always to all of you for listening. If you like what you heard, if you were provoked by it, if something that we said annoyed you, that's a good thing. We want you to share it with your friends and use it to provoke a conversation of your own. And if you have a great guest idea, we always want to hear those from you. Never hesitate to email us at tips at honestlypod.com. See you next week. This is Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer. By now, you've probably heard of my podcast, The President's Daily Brief. We travel around the world talking about the most pressing news of the day. And the goal is to take complicated issues, both here and abroad, and make them really simple to understand. We also talk about solutions to the problems that we discuss, just like the actual brief delivered to the president each day in the Oval Office. So download and subscribe to the President's Daily Brief, available on all major podcast platforms starting at 6 a.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday. It'd be a pleasure if you joined us.